Thank you, Nate. You know, it was wonderful to have Hunter Leith with us last week, and it was wonderful to have all these guests, musicians, and everyone who's helped uh, the last two weeks, but it's good to have Richard and Carol back with us as well, doing what they do as well, and, and Nathan, thank you for leading us in worship today, wonderful service so far. Today we're going to continue our series on worship, and Logan basically just prayed my message, so um, maybe we should just go home now, but no, I'll, I'll share some scripture with you at least uh, that he didn't share. So today we're, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, a, a beautiful passage, and this whole year, you know, we're looking at what the purpose of our church is. All throughout 2018, we're rediscovering who we are. Why does God have us here on this corner? Why do we exist? Why has God chosen in his heart and in his plans to put Woodmont Baptist Church into this community in this time and with these people? What is he up to? What difference does it make if we're here or not? It's an exciting time for our church as we consider what the next 75 years of our church's history are going to look like. So we started this year with a, a series in Ephesians about what the church with a capital C is. The church is the body of Christ, the adopted children of God who have been brought near to the throne of God by his grace and brought into his family in order to display the manifest wisdom of God into the world. We are now as God's people, as his church, here to carry out his plan to unite all things back unto himself. And then we had a month of prayer, 31 days of praying together, of discerning what the Lord's will is for our church. And now we're going to be taking the next five months, yes, months, Carol, not weeks, I did say months, to talk about the, the five purposes of the church, to talk about <clears throat> the New Testament purposes of why the church exists for worship, for evangelism, for discipleship for fellowship, and for ministry. And the key to all of these, the foundation for all the purposes of the church, is worship. If we get this right, the rest of them will fall into place. So this morning we're going to walk through this well-known passage in Philippians, and I, I want us to just dwell in this text today, to really read it through the lens of worship, to think about how this text applies to this idea of what it means to worship the triune God. So let's stand, if you're able to, this morning in honor of God's word, as I read from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. It's such a rich passage, isn't it? Such a beautiful, rich text. Right before this excursus, Paul describes how he's really lived a privileged life. He, he's really lived a life of, of esteem and, and pride and privilege. And you know what? We have too, haven't we? No matter what kind of hardships you've been through, most of us here won the global lottery just by being born in the United States of America. I'm always reminded of the stark economic contrast between developing nations in our own country when I have the opportunity to spend some time with the refugee population here in Nashville, including some amazing people who are right down the hall right now in our Swahili Baptist Church, the refugees that are gathering for worship in our chapel right now. You know, these people have escaped unbelievable violence and oppression only to, to find themselves in to a refugee camp for many, many years before coming to the U.S. But it wasn't like that for Paul. Paul says right before this text that I had it all. I had all the privileges of a wealthy, esteemed Jewish man. I was Jewish royalty, he says. But now, in verse 7, he says that his accounting technique has reversed completely. We have a lot of accountant types here in our church, and I'm really grateful for them. I'm glad that God made people who can manage money and, and crunch numbers and help the church manage its finances. I'm, I'm really, I am grateful for that because it's not my forte. Morgan keeps the books in our family. Her dad's a banker. Her brother's a banker. She's really good at it. I'm not good at it. But Paul starts out this section by describing his balance sheet, okay? I didn't know what that was really until I got on the finance committee here as the pastor. He says that all the advantages that he had had by being born where he was born, by having the education background that he had, the socioeconomic class that he was born into, all of those things that he had achieved as a Jewish elite rabbi and leader of the Jewish church, being appointed by the high council in Jerusalem, 
all of that, all of those achievements had all moved from the gain column, the assets column, into the loss column, the liabilities column. He has now says vice versa that the crucified Messiah, the one whom Paul had believed to have been corrupting the true orthodox, pure Jewish religion, the, the, the crucified Messiah, the troublemaker who was near the top of his loss column, has now been moved to the very top of his gain column, the very number one asset of his life, his greatest gain. He says at the end of verse 8 that the goal of this accounting swap is to gain Christ. And then in verse 9, he says it's the goal is to be found in him. Gaining Christ had made all his other assets, all his other gains, pale in comparison when, when Jude was a little boy, he loved Legos, and we would buy him those nice big Lego sets at Christmas, and he would spend hours playing with them. He had a, a, a table he would just put all his Legos out on, and he would play with all his Legos and build great things. He got really good at following those little instructions, meticulously placing every little Lego where it should go. And then we got him a Nintendo Wii, and his Legos became loss at that point. His Legos, I'm not sure he ever really played with them again after that. I'm glad we have a little brother now who's not discovered Nintendo yet. So the, the, the point is for Paul that Christ is now his ultimate gain. Being found in Christ made every other former advantage that he had had now appear as loss. Because to be found in Christ means to be united to him, to be one with him to be united into his perfection, into his righteousness, into Christ's record of lifelong sinless, sinlessness, which is now ours because of our union with Christ. When we trust in Christ for our salvation, God imputes, that's a great word, a great theological term, he imputes the righteousness of Jesus into us. We therefore stand with confidence before divine judgment because God doesn't look at our record. He looks at Christ's record, and Christ's record is perfect. This has huge implications for worship. You see, worship is all about our gain column. Our assets are the things that we ascribe value to. It's the things that, that we ultimately worship. Whatever's at the top of our asset column is the thing that we give glory to in our lives, the thing that we love. That's the object of our worship. Richard mentioned a, a few weeks ago in his sermon that we've been saying in our men's Bible study for a few weeks now that we chase what we love and we resemble what we chase. We become like the things that we love and chase after in our lives. So the top of our gain column is that thing that we are chasing. It's the thing that we love most. And ultimately, it's the thing that we come to resemble. Worship is about reordering our balance sheet of accounting correctly. When we gather in this place and we sing songs to God and to each other, we remind one another that Christ is the ultimate gain and that everything else is just garbage in the face of his glory. When we worship, 
We remember that Christ alone is the solid rock and all other ground is sinking sand. It has to be. Because to be rich in Christ means to be rich in Christ alone. Look at Matthew 16. It'll be on the screens. Matthew 16, verse 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So many people that I know find Christianity boring or or restrictive because they don't really understand what it means to fully abandon their lives as a living sacrifice on the altar of worship. They don't understand what it means to worship Christ alone, to list Christ as their only asset and to consider everything else as loss. They try to add Jesus into their lives as one more good thing in their lives. But Jesus plus anything is not really gain at all. Gaining Christ requires the loss of former things. If you really have Christ, you don't have anything else. Because grace plus my own achievements plus my own works is not really grace at all. It's definitely not amazing grace. Grace plus anything cancels out grace. Amazing grace is in Christ alone. Gaining Christ and being found in him is all grace. It's all a work of grace. And it comes through faith. We looked at Ephesians 2 a couple months ago. It says that we've been saved by grace through faith. That's what verse 9 is referring to here when it says a righteousness that comes through faith. Religious people are always trying to, to be good enough to go to heaven, trying to earn their way. I, I have conversations every week with people who are so wrapped up in their guilt and in their shame because they failed, they've sinned, they haven't been able to be good enough in what they consider God's standard to be. And you know what? They're right. You have sinned. You have fallen short. You have not attained to the standard of God's holiness. Thank God for grace. That's what Jesus Christ came to bring us the good news. The gospel is that you are sinful and flawed and broken, but God accepts you through the grace offered in Jesus Christ more than you could possibly ever imagine. If you're still in that boat today where you consider the shame and the suffering of, of your own sins, if you're drowning in that world, I would ask you to consider if you're really rich in Christ, in Christ alone, or are you self-confident, self-reliant, trusting in your own abilities to be good enough, your own works, your own achievements? Keep reading it. Let's go back to verse 10. In verse 10, Paul further explains the goal of this whole message, to know Christ. Knowing Christ is not some intellectual knowledge about Christ. It's not like learning about the internet or computers. This is not a, a casual knowledge of someone that you've met a few times. Oh, I, I know that guy. That's not what this is talking about. This is the kind of knowing how a parent knows a child or how a husband knows a wife. It's the kind of knowing that makes Christ trustworthy. 
so that we can trust him because we know him on an intimate, relational kind of level. Yesterday was a beautiful day enjoying the weather and uh, Morgan was at a mom's conference and I took the kids to get donuts and then go to the park and we were at the park and May climbed up on this wall that was about four or five feet high and we were walking past it and she said, Daddy, catch me! And she's six, right? I mean, she's not a little toddler anymore and I said, okay. And she goes, no, scoot back. And I said, okay. And I scooted back. She's like, no, keep going. And I was like, May, I mean, you're bigger than, you know, you may think here. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try this. And of course, she just flung herself with total abandon off that wall. And by God's grace, I was able to catch her with some nervousness and some sweat. My back still hurts, but the point is that she trusts me completely. She knew I would never drop her because she knows me and she trusts me. That's the kind of trust and love that we have with Jesus Christ now that comes from knowing him. So how do you get to know Christ like that? How do you get to trust him like that? It's like Logan prayed. It's by dying a death like his and by living a resurrected life like his. The book of Romans makes that clear, and so does the book of Philippians here. Paul says in verse 10 that to know Christ and the power of his resurrection means to participate in his sufferings and in his death. When we gather for worship, there's always this tension between the the now and the not yet. The, the, The reality of this fallen world and what will be someday in perfection. When Christ was raised on Easter, it did change everything. Nothing will ever be the same after Christ rose from the dead. Death was defeated. The power of sin was broken. The curse of the law was thrown off. But we still have cancer. We still have poverty. We still have divorce. We still have addiction. We still have oppression. We still have violence. We still have inequality. We still have abortion. We still have horrible government corruption and so on and so on. The now, but not yet. Paul's statement in in verse 10, though, are not either or statements. They're both and. Resurrection power and death and suffering, both together. Yes, we do suffer with and for Christ as a part of this fallen world, but we know that we're heading towards a glorious, perfect resurrection. And we can live in that hope, in that knowledge. Resurrection people live with this embedded hope, this knowledge that Christ's resurrection power means that we can throw ourselves into whatever this world brings us with abandon, like my daughter jumping off of the wall. Because come what may, we know that our Father is going to catch us. And we don't, we don't jump off the wall because we just love to suffer. That's not why we do it. But we know that Christ's resurrection redeems suffering. That our suffering is not in vain. That God doesn't waste pain or suffering ever. It's not pointless. It's headed somewhere good. I've been listening to Andrew Peterson's record, Resurrection Letters, Volume 1, ever since Easter on, on repeat in my house and in my car, and he's got a song in there that he didn't write. A guy named Ben Shive wrote it called Remember Me, and the, the third verse says this, 
Just days ago, the sky was stone, kind of like it is now. The trees were standing stripped to the bone. You could hear creation groan. But I write these words on an April day, and the earth is drinking the early rain. The hills remember green again, and we've heard this story all our lives. Still, we feel the pain of the crucified at the end still comes as a surprise. But before the breath there in the tomb, before our joy sprang from the womb, you saw a day that's coming soon. When the sun will stand on the mount again with an army of angels at his command, and the earth will split like the hole of a seed wherever Jesus plants his feet. And up from the earth the dead will rise like spring trees robed in petals of white, singing the song of the radiant bride. And we will always be, always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. In a blog post, Peterson said, by the time we get to that last verse, when I sing this song, I can hardly contain myself. Not only is it a poetic and glorious vision of what's to come, it's scriptural. This, whatever you've been told about Christianity, this is where the whole story of creation is headed. We will always be with the Lord. Do you see how worship reminds us of Easter hope? Hopeful worship is informed worship. Hopeful worship enables us to live as a resurrection people in a fallen world because we know the now, but we also know the not yet. Then in verse 12, Paul reminds us that we're moving forward in this endeavor. Hopeful worship should propel us forward in the Christian life. Progress should be made as we journey with Christ day by day and become more like him. Rob Timms, our speaker last week at our small group leaders training, talked about how after we become united to Christ, every day we grow in our appreciation for who God is. As God reveals himself to us more and more, we learn to appreciate him, to value him greater and greater in our lives. At the same time, we also learn the depths of our own depravity. We learn our own bentness towards sin in our lives. So as we go throughout our lives, it becomes like this, our own valuation of ourself and our valuation of God. And what fills the gap is the gospel. And it just grows and grows and grows. And our picture of the cross becomes greater and greater the more we see the separation between our own sinfulness and God's perfection. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I wish I'd thought of that myself. In verse 14, Paul tells us that he runs with purpose. He runs towards a goal. He's not running around aimlessly like preschoolers playing soccer. You parents who've had preschool soccer, you know what I'm talking about. It's the image Paul gives us of a finish line at the end of a race. He's moving forward in his life toward the end that God had in store for his life. You know, I had the the great honor of officiating the funeral of Gene Pilon, one of our saints who's died a couple weeks ago here in our church, and every one of her children, I talked to all three of her children separately, and they all mentioned how Jean had finished her race, how she had run the course that God had marked out for her, and that she had finished well. May we all live with that kind of purpose and intentionality to our own lives. Then in verse 15, 
when it says, let those of us who are mature think this way, Paul's actually using the same word for mature that he used back in verse 12 when he said, not that I'm already perfect. It's the same word. He said, I'm not perfect, but then he said, if, basically what he's saying is, if you want to be perfect, realize that you're not perfect. Most of the wisest, godliest people that I know are acutely aware of their own, again, their own depravity, of their own sinfulness, of their own prone to wonder, Lord, they feel it, prone to leave the God they love. That's why they say, bind my heart, Lord, like a fetter. Bind it to you. Seal it for your courts above. That's what all mature people have in common. Finally, in the last section of this chapter, Paul urges the Philippians to follow his example and not to follow the example of those who, in verse 18, he describes as enemies of the cross. Paul weeps for them because these are not just pagans. These are professed believers, people who should know better than to follow the things of this world. But they've, they've fallen into that root sin that we talked about last week, the sin from which all other sins spring from. They failed to acknowledge God as God. They failed to appreciate God for who he is and all that he's done. Verse 19 says they worship their own appetites. Their bellies are their gods. They exchange the truth, therefore, and the beauty of the creator for puny little created things. Instead of praising the God from whom all blessings flow, they praise the blessings themselves. And it's tragic. We should weep like Paul over people who fall into this trap because we know where it leads, don't we? It leads to destruction, as Paul says. It happens all the time. People's lives fall apart. Satan would love to kill, steal, and destroy us, right? And he's using idolatry to do this. They fall apart because people worship the wrong thing. This is why worship is so important. This is why getting worship right matters so much. It's an issue of life and death. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think the Bible says that. When we worship the wrong thing, the created things, it's a path to destruction. But as God's children, we're supposed to live differently from the rest of the world. We know the truth. Verse 20 says that our primary allegiance is not to a country or a government or to a flag. It's to a king and a kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. Philippi, the city to which Paul's writing to, prided itself on being a Roman colony. If you lived in Philippi, you could be a Roman citizen. You could apply for Roman citizenship just by living in Philippi. But people who looked to Rome to be their savior, people who prided themselves on their identity as a Roman, had no idea that in a few hundred years, the entire empire of Rome would crumble and perish from the earth. But the kingdom of heaven is marching on today and forever. This whole passage of Philippians 3 is a great and, and much needed reminder today as we ask, what does it mean to worship God? What does proper worship look like? These are ultimately life and death questions, like I said. So to close, I want to give you just three short correctives that I see in this text, that, that this text shows us about proper, hopeful worship. 
You know, I didn't have this as a point, but hopeful worship understands the now and the not yet. That's really the key. Hopeful worship knows that, yes, this world is broken, but we're headed somewhere with purpose and with perfection. So first, hopeful worship helps us to account correctly. You know, I may not be good with numbers and, and financial stuff and, all, you know, finances, but I better get the balance sheet of my life right. I can't outsource that one to Morgan or anybody else. That's something I've got to work out for myself. What do I love most? What am I chasing after? What's at the top of my assets? What do I treasure above all else? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You chase what you love, and you resemble what you chase. Maybe Jesus is up there near the top of your list, but again, if it's Jesus plus anything, then you are missing out on the gospel of grace. Second, hopeful worship helps us to orient our lives correctly, to point in the right direction. And this orientation is, is twofold. First, it's forward-facing. We're making progress as we understand God's greatness and our depravity day by day. The importance of the gospel grows in our lives. Do you remember those station wagons in the 80s? I barely do. I was a little kid, but I, I, I do remember this from being a little kid. Uh, that had the, the rear-facing seat in the back, right? This little seat that faced backwards, and you could maybe fit two or three little people. No seatbelts, of course. And they would face out the back of the station wagon. I heard a comedian talk about that seat, and he said, those kids had a completely different vacation from everybody else in the car. <laughs> they spent all their time on the road trying not to make eye contact with the car that was right behind them. And they would pass a billboard or a sign and say, oh, I wonder what that one said. No idea. Completely different vacation. Paul is not rear-facing. Paul is not bogged down in the past. He forgets the shame of his violent and, and oppressive and arrogant past that he, he spent persecuting Christ. He knows the truth that we as Christians are not defined by our past. Thank God. We are defined by our present and by our future. We are running with purpose. We are in this race to get to the finish line. We have a goal in mind. We want to finish well like Gene Pylon did. The second aspect, we, we move forward in our orientation, but we also move upward. We focus upward to look to earthly things to save us or to give us what we ultimately need ends in destruction every time. Remember, Paul says the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forward, but our focus is upward. Finally, hopeful worship helps us to identify correctly our own identity. You know, I love our country. It's, it's really an amazing place to be. I'm so grateful for the men and women who sacrifice so much to give me the freedoms that I enjoy every day. This country's done some incredible things in the world, and I think it's an incredible place to live. And, you know, Romans said the same thing about Rome when they were alive in their day. But Paul reminds us all that our citizenship, first and foremost, is in heaven. This doesn't mean that we don't engage civically. I vote. I registered to vote in the Nashville elections that are coming up here in a, in a week or two. But it does mean that we act in accordance with our primary allegiance, 
Our actions authenticate our allegiance. We show the world where our citizenship lies by what we do, by behaving and acting as citizens of heaven. That's when we bring heaven to earth, first and foremost. Worshiping in hope means realigning our lives, right? It means reorienting our balance sheets. So let's go forth today and account correctly. Let's orient our lives upward and forward. And let's identify who our Lord and Savior and country of origin actually is. Let's pray now. Lord God, we come to you this morning not even aware of how great you are. Help us to have a greater glimpse of your perfection, of your power, of your might, of your glory. And God, we think sometimes that we have it all together. God, forgive us of our arrogance that we would actually say to you that we can do something that you can't. God, help us to understand the depths of our own depravity, of how great our need is for you. You are God, we are not. Help us to get off the thrones of our own lives. Help us to orient our lives correctly. Forgive us for setting up our balance sheets with such a a jaded and skewed perspective. May we wipe it clean and move you to our asset sheet and only you. You are all we need. We confess that all of our hope is in you, that all of our identity is in you. Help us to live into that reality as your children as we go from this place today. And use us, O oh God, as we go about glorifying you and worshiping you in our lives. May others see it and Praise our Father in heaven when they see our good deeds. Lord, we love you and we pray all these things in your high and your holy name, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation and we're also going to have a time of prayer now. This is something that we did once in March, but you know, a church member came to me and said, this is something we should do every week. So I've, I've had friends who've told me too that in their churches they had a prayer time at the end of their service where a prayer team was available to meet with folks and to pray with them. So this morning, if, if you just want to pray with somebody, or if you just want to come to the altar and physically bring your body to where your soul is by coming to the altar, then I invite you to do so during this time. And we're going to do this every week, every week until the Lord says, stop it. <laughs> so if you've never become a Christian, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ for the first time and accepted the free gift of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk with you about making that decision right now. If you are not a member of Woodmont, not a member of any church, and you feel like the Lord's calling you to join Woodmont as a member, to covenant with us, and to be part of this family of faith, we're not perfect, but um, we are trying to follow that path for God's will for our church. And if you want to be a part of it, we'd love to talk with you about what that looks like here today during this time of invitation. Jan Bennett and Trey Heyman are going to be here. I'm going to ask Brad McKelvey, too, if he would just come and stand here as well. If you want prayer... If you want someone to pray with, these are people that I've prayed with, 
that I respect in their prayer life. And if you want to pray with one of them or with me today or just talk with me, they're going to be just available up here. Or if you just want to come kneel at the altar, it's going to be open as well. And again, we're going to do this every week during our hymn of invitation. We're going to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus and let the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of the glory and grace of Jesus. Let's stand and sing.